All right, enough of that. Let's get into Romans chapter 14. And let me give you the outline in case you haven't received it yet on the PBI group. I'm going to break this chapter into three parts. Uh, Part one, personally persuaded. Personally persuaded. Francois, so do I have to start wearing a tie? Ja, mei broer. Jij moet, jij moet die das gebruik. Maar you can wear any color you like. eh? No worries. Personally persuaded. That's part one, verses one to six. Part two, ultimately accountable. Verses seven to twelve, ultimately accountable. And then part three, principles to practice. Or you might say practical principles. Uh, verses 13 to 23. Verses 13 to 23. Now, I introduced this chapter briefly last week. I'm going to run you through a few introductory comments again. I have often referred to this chapter as the gray chapter because gray areas are dealt with in the chapter. But as I studied it this time around, I think it would be wiser to call it something else. I, gray areas are dealt with in the chapter. What I mean by gray areas, the Bible has some very clear statements on many subjects. It's written in, in black ink on white paper. So we say it's, it's, a, it's in black and white. There it is. This is right. This is wrong. But then there are some things, there are some circumstances, some, some things, some relationships. There are just situations in life where the Bible does not clearly prohibit or allow something, and therefore it creates a bit of a gray area because we don't have it in black and white. This chapter will give us principles to deal with those gray areas. But I think that the gray areas are actually indirectly dealt with in the chapter. I think a a really good title, a better title than gray chapter, would be dealing with doubts. How to deal with doubts. And you're going to see, as we right away in this chapter, we are dealing with things that are actually spelled out. We're dealing with things that are written in black and white, but some people have doubts about those things. Now, what do we do when somebody is in doubt of what is a clear uh, something that is clearly allowed or prohibited? How, do we outright condemn them? Do we allow them to fellowship with us? How do we treat those things? So that's, pri- that's the primary purpose, I think, of the chapters, how to deal with those people that even though they see, you know, Paul's taught this, the Bible says this, God has revealed these things, yet something within them, they cannot bring themselves to allow or to do what God has said you can do. What do we do with that? Do we condemn them? Do we... Do we force them to practice something they're not comfortable with? What do we do? All right, so verse number one. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. So you don't kick them out of the church because they don't have every preference or share every uh, conviction that you have. You receive them anyway, but not to doubtful disputations. Do you see that? Receive them. So bring them in, not so that you can argue with them. You don't want to argue about things based on opinion. Now, it is all right to have a biblical discussion and say, Let, tell me why you think this is right, why you think this is wrong. You can discuss it. 
<clears throat> but in the case that Paul's going to present to us, he gives us two things that he that he I think uses to illustrate his point. Somebody that is weak in the faith, notice this first of all, they are in the faith. They're saved. They they believe the gospel. But they're weak in some points. So part of the New Testament let's say it this way, part of New Testament revelation is that the ordinances from the Old Testament are no longer in effect. Those Jewish ordinances, right? Now, this is something we've covered in Colossians class, especially Colossians 2, verse 14, 15, 16. We looked at that thoroughly. Paul is going to discuss meats, and he's also going to discuss holy days, feast days, in this chapter. Some, now, in the New Testament, it is clear, right? It was revealed to Peter first, and then Paul spelled it out in very clear terms. You can eat whatever you want, right? Jesus told Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Don't call anything unclean. It's, it's all common now. You can have it. That is a clear teaching for New Testament faith. But somebody might be weak in the faith. They might look at that, especially now in our day and time, 2,000 years removed from the establishment of the New Testament church and the revelation of these these new, can I say the new standards that God wants the body of Christ to abide by? When these things were first revealed, you can imagine how a lot of Jews that were converting to Christianity found it difficult, right? They had, were raised in a Jewish society, a Jewish culture. How can we just now turn off 20, 30, 40 years of what we've always prohibited. We were told not to eat certain meats. And now you're saying it's okay. So they might have looked at what was written, what was being said in the church, and said, okay, Paul, Peter, we hear what you're saying, but man, there's, it is just difficult for me personally to accept that. That's the circumstance. That's the situation that Paul is... is addressing here. What about that guy that just can't bring himself to allow what is clearly allowed? Well, you bring him in and you don't condemn him. You don't argue with him. You don't spend a long time trying to listen, brother, you've got to eat this meat. You've got to try a ham sandwich. It's this bialekarwa. You've got to you you don't force it on him. That would be the doubtful disputation. Let me ask you this. If that person says, you know what, I get it. There it stands. It's been revealed. I don't deny it. But me personally, there's just something pricking my conscience. I can't bring myself to do it. Not yet. I'm not comfortable with it. Is he sinning by saying that? No. Well, then why would you argue with him about it? He has accepted the fact that it is a New Testament revelation. But he's also being honest enough to say... I see what the faith, what our belief system allows, but I'm a little weak in that my conscience still bothers me when I, when I think about personally doing that. Then he, he's not sinning. You don't need, there's nothing actually to argue about. Just let, accept that brother and be aware of his limitations and try not to be an obstacle to him. You'll see this later in the chapter. Verse 2, he says, For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is weak 
Edith herbs. What some people would do, they would look at the Old Testament dietary laws, the kosher dietary laws, and say, okay, there are certain meats that are prohibited, but I want to be extra careful not to eat the wrong things, so I won't eat any meat at all. And they chose a vegetarian diet, not for any health reasons or nutritional reasons, but simply based on the fact that they wanted to be extra careful not to violate the kosher system. And that carried into some New Testament believers. They still had it in their heads that, listen, we need to be extra cautious. Okay, fine. Jesus has said we can eat this in the New Testament. We can, we can have any kind of meat. But man, I, I've, just, I've, I've had this preference or this conviction for so long, my conscience won't let me do it. So Paul's pointing out there's two sides to this. Verse 3, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. So the guy who, let's, let's call it what it is, strong in the faith. He accepts the revelation and he's applying it. He's living by it. He is not to look down on the guy who is being honest about how he feels. He says, listen, I, I see it. I just can't apply it myself. More power to you. Enjoy the ham sandwich. Me, I'll have my tofu. Let him have it. More meat for me, right? Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. He is no less a Christian. He's not farther away from God because of the position he takes on this issue. And let not, in verse 3, let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. God allows that person to eat whatever he would like. So the the guy with the weaker constitution in this case, he cannot judge me or anybody that has that stronger position, say, hey, look at all these extra rules that I abide by. You're not abiding by these, so you're not as strong a Christian. You're not as close to God as I am. You see, he has no, no right, to no standing to say that. There, there's no standard by, that he can apply to that brother in that case. God has received what that other guy is doing. Verse 4, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? So in both cases, the guy who's strong in faith, weak in faith, who are they, who are they following? Who are they submitting to? Who are they doing this because of? Right? One guy says, I'll eat anything because God says so. The other guy says, I'm going to be extra cautious because I don't want to upset the Lord. I want to make sure I do it right. They're both attempting to please God. Right? In both cases, God is the master. So you can't take your own personal standards and judge that other man by it. You're not his master. Watch this now. Who art thou that judgest another man's servants? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Amen. He's going he's gonna to be judged ultimately by his master. So, I cannot judge anybody else by my personal standards. We'll talk more about personal standards in a moment compared to God's. But, what I can do, I'm not that guy's master, but if I know who his master is, I can judge that person based on that person's master. 
I can go to that person's master and say, Master, what do you expect of this person? What did you tell him to do? And then I can look at what that person is doing with their master's commands and then come to a conclusion and say, listen, you're not living up to the standard. Not talking about my own, but his own master's standard. So in that sense, we can't. And, and in so doing, we are judging righteously. Yes, Jesus told us to do that. Now, that doesn't mean right, that anybody is called to go around in the body of Christ and check up on everyone. This does not call for a judgmental attitude. I'm not trying to condone that at all. I've preached against that. I'm just trying to point out the difference between judging by your own standard and judging by God's. In verse 4, at the end of it, Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. So no matter where you fall, on a gray area, or on a matter of conscience, right, a, a, a preference that you have, if you're, if you're working within the boundaries, within the standards that God has set, God is able to help either man stand. God's able to give him grace and help that person to live according to that standard. The, the, what we have to understand here is sometimes there's two right answers. Sometimes. Not always. But the illustration that Paul has used to this point really allows us to, to see this clearly. If somebody says, I'll eat meat, I'll eat anything. Okay, fine. That's a good standard. That's right. Another guy says, I'm just going to eat herbs just on the safe side. And that's, you know, my conscience, that's as far as I can go. There's nothing wrong with that. Both things are right. So God is able to give grace and help each one of them to abide by those standards that their conscience allows them to live with. Let's talk about these standards for a moment. I mentioned this last week. They come from three places. There are three sets of standards you need to recognize. All of us need to deal with this. God has standards. There are things that God says, This here's the boundary, here's the line. Don't cross this line. You cross this line, you're sinning. It's transgressing, trespassing. You're going across the fence. All right, there's God's standards. Then there is society's standards. This stems from Romans chapter 2. Society will accuse and excuse one another. So we think of this as culture, right? Within various cultures... There are always similarities the world over, right? Killing, murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, adultery is wrong. All of that's always condemned all over the world. But then there are some things that depends on where you live and how, where you grew up. And I, I'm hesitant to start making a list of these things because there might be somebody listening that, that would just say, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. That can't be right in any in any place. There's no way that God would allow that. But you'd be shocked. You think that because in your little box in which you grew up, the box of your society, it has always been condemned. That would never be right. You can't even imagine it being right. But then some other society somewhere else in the world, that same issue is always acceptable. And they can't believe that you have a problem with it. So rather than get into a long list of what those might be, let me, let me press on to the, the third. There's a, a personal standard. 
So you have God's standard, society standards, and personal standards. Our personal standards, what we allow or disallow, usually a combination of God working on our hearts, what we've read in God's revealed word, that shapes our convictions, our preferences. And then also we are affected, all of us, by our society, the way we were raised, the people we spend time with, the church we go to. It, it affects how we feel about right and wrong. Yeah? Uh, I think you'd be surprised, and, and it depends on the issue we're dealing with. Sometimes a society will outlaw something and say that is just wrong, and God really doesn't have a problem with it. But we grow up with that mindset, this has got to be wrong. And when you really begin to investigate it and, and search for a verse for that in the Bible, you fail to find a verse. You go, wait a minute, I thought this was clearly wrong. Forgive me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention one because I want to illustrate this so you see the point. I get asked this question a lot. Why is smoking wrong? Why is it wrong? We, we just, I, I want to say naturally assume it. It must be wrong, right? I, I, when you try to find a verse, there, there are no verses for it. There are no verses that say it's wrong. There's no verses that says it's right either. You say, well, it's, it's, it's harmful to the body. Yeah, I agree. So is caffeine. Right? Uh, so is sugar. You say, well, in moderation, you could say the same about tobacco. You see that if you really press the argument, you're going, you're going to find out that you're not actually applying a biblical standard when you prohibit smoking. I have reasons why I wouldn't smoke. Some of them are health-related, and many of them are testimony-related. I don't want to. I don't understand that, that just as the natural man, why would I suck smoke into my body? That, that seems to go against nature, right? We don't want to inhale smoke. <laughs> but when you think about society, they, they make connections. A Christian who smokes in, a, in this culture, it seems to be that people would just say, that just doesn't look right. That's where society draws a box and says, you know, that thing is wrong. But then when you go to look in, in God's Word, where's the standard? He doesn't say it. There are cultures, there are societies where smoking is completely acceptable. You know? And when you're in that country, if you were to light up a cigarette, they would not even, they wouldn't look at that and go, oh, you said you're a Christian, now look what you're doing. They wouldn't even do that. Don't think that I'm condoning it. I'm not saying, well, you know, do as you, as you see fit. You're going to see by the end of the chapter that there is a reason, especially within our society, why you wouldn't want to do it. Let me mention before I move on to, to the uh, verse 5, when I talk about gray areas, let me just mention a few of them so that as we work through the chapter, I don't have to continually repeat these illustrations. Just know that the principles we're going to cover tonight can apply in these types of areas. Um, there are some people, and it's interesting, we talked about Maidas, Fanon. Uh, there are some Christians 
that believe if a preacher isn't wearing a necktie, that he shouldn't preach. Now, how many of you South Africans, I'd I'd really be interested to see, please drop a comment on this. How many of you share that conviction? How many of you, maybe you grew up, maybe not now you don't believe it, but at some point in your life, you, you were under the impression that a, a pastor, a duomini, a preacher must wear a necktie. Now, of course, I grew up in a Catholic church, so I believed it was normal for me to see the, the priest wearing a robe. It was very awkward when I started going to a different church to see a man just in a suit. I quickly got used to it, but then I got used to that. A man needs to wear a suit and a tie. It was just normal. That's what I always saw. But did you know there's no verse in the Bible that says you have to wear a necktie? I can, I can give you reasons why it's good to do, but none, none of those reasons will be biblical. They wouldn't be anti-biblical. They're not against Scripture. But I have to put it into that gray box where it's more a personal preference that comes from a mixture of of God's standard and society's standards, and then I have my own personal preference on it. I am not going to enforce it on our church, on anybody that gets in our pulpit says, you have to wear a necktie. There's no verse for it. Entertainment. Now, I say entertainment because that's a nice broad category. Movies, music, TV shows, things of that nature. It's very difficult to just make a blanket statement and say TV shows are wrong, movies are wrong, music is wrong. You you can't jump to that conclusion. Then we have to ask the question, what kind of movies are okay, what kind aren't? Do you see how this could get very gray very quickly? One person might be comfortable with certain kinds of movies. Other people would say, I would never watch something like that. We're going to have to be gracious in dealing with that. Uh, Brother Lester Roloff, some of you might be familiar with that name. He had a long list of convictions and preferences that I, I don't share, but he was dealing with people coming out of like a, a life of drugs and alcohol. He dealt with a, a lot of people with rough backgrounds. So he would enforce, I would say, extra rules just to try to help them clean up. But he had one, he didn't allow coffee. No coffee. No caffeine. Um, yeah, I don't know if that would work for me. I, I tried no coffee for a little while. I really missed it when I tried it. He thought, now he preached against it as if it were a sin. The way it came across. So when we talk about preferences, about gray areas, these are the, what does the Bible say about coffee? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't have any verses about it. So how do we know right or wrong? How do we judge these things? That's what we're going to find out in this chapter. There are some principles within the chapter that will help us discern these kinds of things. Let me say this as well. There are two things you need to consider when forming a standard. You need to look at what God has revealed on the issue. If God has said, this is right, this is wrong, then finished in God. This is right, this is wrong. That's, that's the end of the conversation when we're determining righteousness. However, you do need to consider one other thing. You look at the revealed word 
And then you also consider your conscience. Let me tell you another way to say that. You consider how you feel about it. Now I know I've, I have preached about feelings. And you've heard from our pulpit people warning about living by feelings. You cannot live by feeling alone. But let's, let's be realistic. We all have feelings. We, and our feelings often stem from our conscience. If our conscience is pricked, we feel awkward about something. It just doesn't fit right. It doesn't feel right. Guys, when in doubt, do without. When in doubt, do without. If you're doing something and you say, but you know, I've, I've seen it in the Bible. It's explained. It, this should be okay. But man, when I try to do that, when I think about doing that, it just doesn't feel right to me. Then you need to be cautious about violating your conscience. If you are not convinced that that thing you're about to do or not do is the right way to do it, when in doubt, do without. Be careful about that. You'll see... The Apostle Paul talked about the conscience more than anybody in the Bible. Over and over again, he talks about how the Holy Spirit bears witness and how his conscience bears witness. Paul was tuned in to his feelings. Now this isn't to say, now here's where we've got to be careful. And, and, and I want to make sure we deal with this part thoroughly. You cannot get, the, get somebody that says, well... Uh, God said don't steal, but I don't, you know, it doesn't bother me. I don't feel bad when I do it. Well, come on now. You cannot allow your feelings to directly contradict and rebel against the revealed will of God. You understand? I, I had a chat with somebody yesterday on the streets, and he was trying to convince me, or let's say he was trying to explain why he feel why he thinks that getting tattoos is not a problem. And I told him, honestly, I said, you know, you have an interesting perspective. I've never heard anyone explain it that way in trying to justify tattoos. I said, that's, that's a really interesting way to come about it. And I meant that. I didn't agree with what he said necessarily, but it was an interesting perspective. Now, his way of justifying it is merely through human reasoning and feeling he has not taken into account what God said about it, and he really didn't seem open to anybody else's opinion on the matter that didn't agree with him. And there is an example of somebody who's just living by feeling. That's how I feel about it. Okay, but that's not all you need to consider. You need to consider how your conscience feels about doing or not doing that thing. Then also... and. Even more so, take into account what God said about it. Now, as we've already seen in this chapter, some people can look at what God has said, and it's just the way they're built. They go, okay, God said at one time, don't eat meats, certain meats. I'm going to be extra careful and not eat any meat at all. Forget about just pork, you know, crab, seafood. I'm, I'm just going to abstain from all meats. That's the way he's built. He needs to recognize how his conscience works within him and abide by that. Now you're going to see how this plays into verse 5 and, and onward. Verse 5, One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own 
mind. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you individually get to choose right and wrong all by yourself and we all just we all have our own standards and as long as we live up to what we believe is right then God's going to accept it. Some people get carried away with that. But when it comes to these grayish areas that's when this principle of every man be fully persuaded in his own mind that's when it applies one man esteems one day above another so he thinks there are holy days throughout the year that need to be observed <clears throat> you can think of this especially with the jewish feast days that's what paul's i believe intending here but another esteemeth every day alike now what's the new testament standard on this what's what has been revealed to us every day is alike we do not need to sanctify one day of the week and not work at all. There's no command that you must gather on this day and not that day. In the New Testament, every day is alike. Every day is just as holy as the next. Now, think about this. Verse 5 is one of the best verses that you can turn to to prove dispensationalism. Let me show you what I mean by that. Take verse 5 and try to put it next to Leviticus 23. Do you know what's in Leviticus 23? That chapter explains all the feast days for Israel. It says every Sabbath day, every seventh day of the week is holy. Don't work. And then it talks about the Passover. It talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It talks about what we know as Pentecost, Feast of Weeks. It talks about the, 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 the Feast of the... In gathering, talks about the new moons. It explains all these special days. You could not go to the Israelites in the Old Testament following Moses and try to tell them verse 5. They would say, that's, that's ridiculous. You can't choose. Some days are more important. God has told us so. So this shows us that in the Old Testament... When God said to a particular group of people, this is how it works, they need to abide by that. It doesn't matter if they say, well, I think every day is the same. But God said they're not. Now, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, God has said every day is just as good as another. That's Colossians 2, verse 14, verse 16. Every, one day is as good as the other. But if somebody says, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Not on my calendar. I think that, here's a big one, I think December 16th is an important day. And I think it must be observed. There's no command in the New Testament that says you have to observe December the 16th. You cannot make that stick biblically. You can't. Is it wrong to say, I think that's a special day? It means something to me. No, it's not wrong. We cannot condemn anyone that thinks December 16th is a, a holy day. To them, okay, if it is, if you're persuaded of that, honor it. But you can't teach it as a New Testament doctrine. Yeah. Somebody might say, but Passover and the birth of Christ, they see these, let's call them Christian holidays, and they say we have to recognize them and treat them as special. If you think so, then do so. If that, if that sits well with your conscience, then by all means do it. But there's no command in the New Testament that says you have to have a special service at church on Christmas Day. 
and we're not even going to get into the actual date of, of Jesus' birth, right? But there's there's nothing that says you have to on uh, what we now know as Easter Sunday. You have to have a special service. Guys, we honor the resurrection every Sunday. That's why we meet on the first day of the week as a church. It is to honor that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. <clears throat> So if somebody wants to say one day is more important, help yourself. But that would be considered, I almost want to say weak in the faith. Because he is not, he's not abiding by the New Testament revelation that every day is alike. See, his conscience won't allow him to just treat all days the same. I mean, maybe you can make an argument the other way and say, you know, the guy who sees days are special, stronger, but it doesn't matter. Either side, you need to... Pay attention to what God said. You can't contradict it. You can't rebel against it. But you might be able to work within the framework and come to a different conclusion and say, I think some days are special. Then do something about it. Verse 6, He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. Why does he think that day is special? Because there's something special about the day that, that God did. Right? He's going to honor God with that day. Okay, well, if that's the case, help yourself. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. So the next guy says, I think every day is just the same. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Why does he have that standard? He sees that as coming from God. That's, that's the way God told him to, to view the, the calendar. Okay, they're both doing this for the Lord. Paul applies the same standard to the dietary system. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. He that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. In both situations, they say, well, thank God he allows me to have this ham sandwich with an extra serving of bacon. And the next guy says, God, I am trying to be extra cautious not to offend you. I'm, I'm paying attention to my conscience and thank God for my tofu. Either way, God gets thanked. So we have to respect that. Nobody is sinning in either case. Nobody's violating God's standards here. Verse 7. Forgive me, before I read verse 7, I don't share the conviction about the tie. All right, Tanya, yeah, you and me are on the same page there. I wear it for my own preferences, but I don't mind if somebody else does it. Does the Bible say how many times a day we're allowed to? Oh, come on now. Why do people got to put that stuff on there? Oh, well. Verse 7, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Now, what Paul's going to get at here is the buck doesn't stop with you. That's his point. You are ultimately accountable to God. So God is going to one day ask you, but why did you do that? What was the reason for that standard? Did you allow this or disallow this because of public pressure? Was it you were trying to impress your family? Did you want to gain a greater reputation? Or were you doing this to please me? What was the reason for this standard that you lived by? Verse 8, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. So if I'm alive, what I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying to please God with it. I'm trying to live my life in a way that's acceptable to Him. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. So in death, I'm going back to God. And I, I, my body is left behind waiting for the resurrection. But
but even in death, I know who I'm going to meet, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So either side, it doesn't matter in this life or after this life, I answer to God. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, a judgment. So either way, in this life, I answer to God. He's the ultimate person I'm trying to please. And after this life, he's the one I'm going to answer to. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. So we need to be cautious that whatever standards, preferences we have, that they're acceptable to him. Verse 9, For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So Jesus has experienced every aspect of life. He lived 33 years, and then he went through death, of course, and conquered it. So now he's able to judge the quick and the dead. Right? He's able to judge lost people, saved people. He's able to judge somebody who is presently alive, living their life, because Jesus lived a human life. And he's also, he has authority to judge those that have died because he has also gone through death. So because of his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has authority in every aspect. Now let me address in verse 9, this might seem a bit strange. It almost seems redundant. He died, he rose, and revived. And in some of, there are very few, but there are some manuscripts that take out the word revived, and I assume that whatever scribe deleted that word, that they were under the assumption it was just redundant. They didn't see a difference between he rose and he revived. And I I admit those two words are very closely linked. However, I do think there's a difference. Jesus could have died and then risen again and gone straight back to the Father, sat down on the right hand of God, and done nothing else. I think what Paul is getting at here is that after Jesus rose, he became active again. Jesus took on certain responsibilities and tasks after his resurrection. Thus, the reviving, he got back to work. If I can, I think that might be a nice way to say it. What was he doing before his death? Teaching his disciples, preparing them for the ministry. What did he do after he rose from the dead? He taught his disciples and prepared them for the ministry even further. The Bible talks about even after Jesus went back to heaven, how he still, in spiritual form, mind you, but he still went with his apostles, working uh, signs and, and so forth with them. He was working with them. So I think that's why the revived is in there. He not only woke up from the dead, but he got back to work. So verse 10, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? To set at naught means to make him nothing. So you can see how this would work. Somebody who is strong in the faith would look down his nose and despise the guy who has these extra little hang-ups that aren't necessary according to the, to the strong in faith. And he would say, man, you're, you're nothing. You're a spiritual zero. And Paul's condemning that. says, well, why, why are you despising him just because... He's paying attention to his conscience. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So you're, you're deciding that 
this guy's a zero, but that's not your decision to make. And especially because you're judging him by your standard. The way that that man's living, there's nothing wrong with that standard. And if there isn't anything wrong with it, you can't call him a zero. He's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now notice it says Christ. If some new Bibles change this and, and make it the judgment seat of God, which I think is a mistake. That's, that's a mistake. And we're not going to delve into the manuscript history behind this, although there is a strong argument for the way that the King James Bible has, has worded it. But I think it's important to leave it Christ and not God. And here's why. Look at verse 11. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Now, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45, verse 23. That is your attendance code for this evening. He's quoting Isaiah 45, verse 23. And he says, every knee shall bow to me. Now, he's, he's quoting, obviously, something the Lord said in Isaiah 45. Every tongue shall confess to God. So if you have the word Christ in verse 10, which I, I do believe, historically speaking, that is the word that, that Paul used. Paul is calling Christ God saying you're going to answer to Christ because the Bible says in Isaiah 45, every need shall bow, every tongue confesses to God. So I, I see this as a strong uh, proof for the deity of Christ. Verse 10, great verse. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Ultimately, that's where you're accountable. You're going to have to explain to God why you had this belief system you had, why you applied it the way you did, and you'll have to answer to God for how you treated and affected your brother. How did your life help your brother get stronger in the faith or closer to God? Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. And I find that almost ironical. Let us not judge one another anymore, but judge. <laughs> Don't judge, but judge. So Paul's not taking proper judgment off the table. Unnecessary judgment. Applying your preferences and your position on somebody else. You can't do that. But Paul says, be cautious of this. Judge this rather. That no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So be careful that what you allow or what you think is important, make sure that it doesn't somehow interfere, interrupt, or confuse your brother. Be cautious that you don't hinder their walk with God. Now, do you see that that is a very broad principle? But if you apply that principle to all of those gray areas I mentioned earlier, entertainment, whether or not you know, how you dress when you come to church, smoking, things of that nature. If you apply it to that, it's okay. It might, I might be comfortable with it, but the people around me may not understand or may not share that conviction. So let me be cautious that I don't offend the people around me and cause confusion. They might interpret this or understand it incorrectly. And this was going on a lot in Paul's day. He deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 quite a bit. There were believers in Paul's day 
they were dead set that meat is just meat, which is true. But they wanted to prove to the world that meat is just meat, so they would go into the idol's temple, pick up the meat, and eat it right there in the idol's temple. Well, do they have a point? Yes, they have a point in that the meat is just meat. But what was happening are younger Christians or those weak in the faith are walking past and seeing this or hearing about it and going, wow, does this mean we can fellowship with idols? And they got the wrong message from that. So you have to be cautious about how your testimony is going to be affected by the things you allow or disallow. Verse 14, I know... Here's Paul's conviction. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Now, I believe he's referring to the diet, right? According to the context, that's, that's what he's talking about. And he says, guys, my conviction, Jesus has convinced me of this. It's not society. It's not just me. The Lord has told me that the Jewish dietary system is, is over. All things are clean now. Then he adds on to it, verse 14, But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So if a person looks at it and says, Okay, the Lord said it's fine, but oh, my conscience just won't let me do that. I, I can't eat it and feel good about it. Not, you know, it, it Emotionally, conscience-wise, I can't do it with a clear conscience for whatever reason. Okay, if that's where you're at, be honest about it and don't eat the meat. Verse 15, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, so you're strong in faith, I believe whatever, I, I can eat whatever I want, but the guy next to me, he's not there yet. See, so he's going to see me eat this and go, oh man, wow, what are you doing? And it's going to upset him. If thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. You're not walking in love. What is love? Put that person before yourself. Let me consider him before I just do what I want to do. How is this going to affect him? Is it going to edify him? Is it expedient? Is it going to help him closer to God? I'm not just going to wave my liberty around in his face. So I can eat whatever I want. I don't care what you think. That's not charitable. I am going to try as much as I can to accommodate the people around me as much as I can. We are called to be considerate, but we are not called to compromise. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to sit next to a Muslim and be shy and say, listen, if you think Muhammad's the way, then I'll just leave it be, and I think Jesus is the way. See, there are cer certain places where it's very clear, that's wrong, this is right. There's no, there's no gray. There's no two ways about it. Mm -mm. There's only one way. But in this case, with these grayish type of situations, there's two right ways to go about it. Eat anything you want. Eh, well, I don't feel comfortable. Okay, both ways are acceptable. Then you need to be willing to accommodate and be considerate. Verse 15 in the middle, Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. So again, I refer back to that illustration with the, the person who is eating the meat in the idol's temple, the, the weaker brother sees that and says, man, we can fellowship with idol. I didn't know that. And then he ends up, he ends up confused about the faith. You are, you are destroying 
what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in that person, building that person up, getting them stronger in the faith, clearing up confusion. You're, you're creating chaos and confusion. You're making them go backwards. Verse 16, let not then your good be evil spoken of. Are you allowed to eat whatever you want? Yes. But if you eating whatever you want in the presence of somebody else creates confusion and chaos and destruction, then what is good will be evil spoken of. Now, take that template and you can put in there, you can take meat out and put whatever gray area issue you want into that. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Now, what's the kingdom of God? It is God ruling in a person's heart. We're obviously dealing with the spiritual kingdom, as as you'll see in, in this verse. The kingdom of God, if God is in control and operating in a person's heart, then we're, that is not manifested by this person having a, a certain dietary law. How is it manifested that a person is under God's control? It is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. When a person is in submission and yielded to the Spirit of God, then he seeks to do what is right in that situation. He seeks to create peace with his brother, not division. He seeks to bring joy not confusion and irritation and frustration and vainglory. You see, these are the things that we want to focus on and be concerned about. These are the principles that we apply. When we think, is this right to do? Is this wrong to do? Well, I don't have a clear verse on it. How do I know? Let me do what's right, what will cause peace and joy. Those are the things that we consider to come to a conclusion. Verse 18, For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Now again, be careful not to take this out of his context. You can't say, well, as long as everybody around me approves of what I'm doing, it must be right. That's not what Paul's saying here. Take it in his context. If you seek to do what is right and you are a peacemaker and you're seeking a way to create joy and not frustration and irritation, God is pleased with that approach. And generally speaking, mankind is pleased with that approach. They approve of that. They will appreciate that. Verse 19, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, peacemakers, and things wherewith one may edify another. What I'm about to do, how is it building somebody up? How is it going to teach them more about God? more about Christ. Now, back to my illustration or the issue that I raised earlier about smoking. Say, well, there isn't a verse anywhere in the Bible that prohibits it. Is there a verse anywhere in the Bible that says it's a good idea? First, you need to ask yourself that. Dig a little deeper. And then also ask yourself this, if somebody sees me smoking, is it going to help them get closer to God or farther away? Will it cause confusion? Will people be more willing to listen to me preach the gospel if they see me doing this? Or would it help if I'm not doing it? I I taught a lesson a while back about drinking, and you're going to see this in the next couple verses. And I, guys, we can go through it again if if you want sometime in the future. Biblically, I think the teetotaler position is difficult 
to sustain. But that doesn't mean I think it's right to socially drink because of this standard. How does it help? See, I'm not hurting anyone, but does it help anyone? See? Now, we'll, we'll, there's more to say about it. We'll get to it now. Verse 20. For meat, destroy not the work of God. God is working in that person's life. Please do not, just for the sake of the bryflace, do not mess up what God's doing. Because, well, bless God, I have a right to eat whatever I want. Yes, but there's more to life than just meat and drink. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure. There's the doctrinal statement for the New Testament. When it comes to our dietary law, all things are pure. We, that's clear. That has been revealed. But, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. If his conscience is offended, if it pricks his conscience to eat that meat, whatever the reason is, then he, he shouldn't do it. If he eats it and it bothers him, he is sinning when he does it. You'll see that at the end of the chapter. So, recognize the clearly revealed truth of the New Testament. All things indeed are pure. But then also recognize how your conscience is affected and the conscience of those around you. You have to let that factor in as well. Verse 21, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. How could you make him weak? Well, because of the way it's worded in this chapter, weak in the faith, somebody might, they might look at what Paul has written or maybe they've heard what he has said, say, okay, I get it. But then they see this other guy who, who's applying some different standards to life and it causes him to be confused about what was said. And, and now he's starting to doubt the veracity of what was said and how it can be applied and that causes him to be weak. Verse 22, hast thou faith? Do you believe a certain thing is okay to do? Have it to thyself before God. So if you can, with a clear conscience, say, I have searched the scriptures and I don't see where God forbids it. I understand how society might be confused if they see me doing it, but I am convinced by God and by my own conscience, that this is okay. If that's where you're at on a particular issue, then do it privately. That is how, this is the, the principles that you need to practice, right? How do I decide what to do and where to do it? You've got to think what God allows, what society allows, how it affects them. If you think it's okay, great. If there's some doubt somewhere else, if there's public doubt about it, then have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. I allow it, fine, but if I do this thing publicly and it hurts someone or causes confusion, then my good is evil spoken of. I, can't, I cannot in good conscience enjoy that thing that I allow. You can't enjoy it publicly. If you want to do it, do it privately. Verse 23, and he that doubteth is damned if he eat. Now damned, we covered this last week, not in the eternal sense, 
but in the sense of verse 15, destroy not. Right? You're, you're messing up the work of God. Where was that? Verse 20. You're messing up what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in that person's life to build them up. He that doubteth is damned if he eat. So that person who has that weaker conscience about it says, yeah, you know what? I just don't feel that it's right. Ah, because everybody else is doing it, I'll do it anyway. I, I just, I want to fit in or I, I don't want to look weak, so I'll do it. Paul says, if you do that, then you are violating your conscience and you're sinning. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. You're not convinced. You're not fully persuaded yet. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you are not fully convinced and have peace in your heart, fully persuaded that it is okay to do that, don't do it. This is where I told you earlier, when in doubt, do without. I know from personal experience, as a new Christian, there were several things that bothered me. I, was, I just wasn't spiritually mature enough at the time to fully grasp, how can certain people do these things? I, for me, I needed to stay away from a lot of different things. Because I was coming out of my old life, if I were to stay near those things or hear those things or expose myself to them, I'd be too tempted to go back. Now. 20 some odd years later, I've grown a little bit. My knowledge of the scripture has grown. I've seen where God's lines are drawn, where the boundaries are. I'm not going to try to live just next to the boundary, live dangerously. That's not the point. But as time has gone on, some of my convictions and preferences have changed. But those are things I won't discuss. Many of them, not publicly, because your conscience shouldn't be, right? You shouldn't feel condemned because of what I allow in my own life. I assure you this, I'm trying to be very cautious to stay within God's boundaries because ultimately I know I answer to Him. But I'm also going to answer to Him for how I affected those around me. All right, so that brings us to the end of Romans chapter 14. I hope this has been a help to you folks. Um, seeing if there is a legitimate question to answer. All right, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll close for the evening. Father, thank you for this evening, for the opportunity to look in this chapter and what a great chapter, Lord. What a wonderful overall principle to live by. Righteousness, peace, joy as we're led by the Holy Ghost. Lord, help us to be mindful of what you've said and of the conscience you've put within us. And help us, Lord, to edify those around us. Help us to be aware of, of how our life affects them. We don't live to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. One day we'll stand before you. We, we want to meet you with a clear conscience. Father, thank you for your help tonight. Please instill in us, cultivate in us that spiritual hunger. Bring us back again Tuesday to learn more from your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, you have a wonderful evening. Take care.